You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. As we come to our primary text today in 2 Samuel chapter 6, what we're going to see here is is a, um, a powerful commentary on worship. And it's interesting because the the larger historical context is David is now king. He's coming into Jerusalem and he wants to make sure that he has the Ark of the Covenant with him. If you remember your Bible history uh, pretty well, you will know that he came into Jerusalem with the Ark. Some things went wrong. The cart started to spill over. A guy named Uzzah reached out, touched it, and he died. That happens right before our primary text here this morning. And then now in chapter six, what we have is the story of when the Ark of the Covenant actually came into Jerusalem. And you would think that this would be a a, uh, 100% positive story, a story that's all about worship and all about encouragement. But in fact, what it is, it's kind of the, the last look and last chapter and a very sad last note on the life of a woman by the name of Michael. So today we're going to be talking about David, but we're also going to talk about this daughter of Saul, this wife of David, Michael, all right? And as we look at her life, what we see here is, we see a word of warning as it relates to our hearts and to our worship. We're going to be looking at several passages today. Uh, The first two we look at, we we will look at briefly here in a little bit, but our primary text is here in 2 Samuel. So if you will stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's word, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 16. And I want you to notice this passage. It's not just about the story, the history. It is literally and more pointedly about worship. Let's hear it. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Oh Lord, Our worship is so important. A lack of worship can be devastating. The last word I read, the word death, reminds us that our worship life is life. 
And apart from it, Lord, we will surely falter and fall. Speak to us, Lord, today. And do not let our love for you grow cold. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are blessed to have the word of God and all of the stories from the Old Testament. But one of the things we need to realize is, is that there's a whole lot more that goes on around these stories than the Bible records. The, the Hebrew people were writers and thinkers and, and, and history makers and, and they wrote down those histories. And we do have some of the legends, some of the side stories of the Hebrew people. One side story of the Hebrew people that we have uh, had handed down to us, one of the legends of the Hebrew people is that Michael, the daughter of Saul, was the most beautiful woman in all of Israel. She was the most beautiful woman She was surrounded her entire life by the luxuries of royalty. She was a person who had everything going for her. All of the privilege that a woman could have in this day and age. She was, I would think, a woman, a young woman who got what she wanted. And if you will, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 18, where we're going to be here in just a moment. You'll see that what she wanted was who she wanted. She wanted David. She wanted to have David as her husband. Now, her name, Michael, that doesn't sound like a common female name in our world today. But in the Hebrew, this was a beautiful name. So here's the interesting part. We have one of the most beautiful women, maybe of all history, with one of the most beautiful and godly names. Her name is an amalgam, a mashup, if you will, of two Hebrew words. The first means something like this, who is like God. The second Hebrew word that forms her name is God is my king. Now, here's a beautiful woman with all of the privileges that life can offer. She has a beautiful name pointing to a beautiful destiny. Everything seems like what we have here is a, 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 the stage being set for a godly heroine, a, a great hero of the faith for the Jewish people. But as we read the narrative, what we realize is, is that Michael's life, though it has so much promise, it ends in disgrace. She becomes one of the most tragic figures in all of scripture. And it all boils down to this. Listen, it wasn't like these major moral choices that she made. Although we're going to show you a couple things that point at, maybe at hint at some problems in her heart. But the Bible doesn't really tell us anything major wrong with her, morally wrong with her. But one thing we see consistently as we get to that sixth chapter of 2 Samuel is this is a woman who lost her way in worship. That may not seem like a big deal to you, but before we finish up here today, I hope it becomes something paramount and ultimate in your heart. Human affections toward God will naturally lessen over time. And if you're writing down these these phrases here, I want you to underscore the word naturally. Because what I mean by that is, is in the flesh, apart from the spirit, our affections, our love for God will naturally wane. Just because we come to know Christ and have a powerful uh, salvation experience doesn't mean that that experience is going to automatically carry forward. In this fallen world, worship is the only way that we can keep our heart warm. This is crucial for us today. And Michael's story is a cautionary tale and hopefully a wake-up call for you and the church today. Now, 
our first two points. I wanna be quick and, and move through the text quickly because our third point is really where I want you to meditate with me for a few moments this morning. But we need to set this up. I need to show you a progression. So if you're in 1 Samuel 18, as I asked you to go there a moment ago, but if you're like my children, you haven't done that yet, um, get around to it when, when you want to, of course. Um, 1 Samuel 18, verses 20 through 28. Now we covered that last week. And, and last week, um, this was part of the text that we, we didn't spend a lot of time on. And again, here today, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on. But in this text, you see kind of a love at first sight uh, possibility. I put a question mark there because no one knows for sure, but it sure seems like Michael, as she sees David, she really loves him. And love is a, is a key concept in scripture, we would all agree, a dominant theme, even in 1 Samuel chapter 18, why? Well, if you go back and look in, in the first few verses of chapter 18, you see that Jonathan loved David. You'll see that all of Israel loved David. And here, starting in the 20th verse, we see that this woman, Michael, this daughter of Saul, loved David. The only person who doesn't love David is Saul. But everybody else seems to really love David. Now, Michael is a daughter of a king and she acts like it. In verses 20 and 28, we get hints that she was very expressive about her desire to have David as her husband. This was a culture where women weren't usually expressive in such matters. They were more passive. But here we see Michael being very clear about her desires. Now, I don't want to uh, claim to be a hopeless romantic or anything of that nature, but I do believe in a thing called love at first sight. I think there is something here where, where we see Michael, she sees David and loves him. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, love could not only be uh, an infatuation in this uh, relationship, but it could turn into something very beautiful and wholesome. But there are hints in the text. Verse 21 of chapter 18, Saul, he views his daughter as a potential spiritual snare. There's something in her heart that's not quite right. Even here, when we're first introduced to her, there is a hint that, that if the Philistines don't get David, his wife, Michael, would. Now, something's wrong here. There's a hint here that something isn't right with her heart. Now, this could set us up for a major moral fa failure on Michael's part, but it doesn't. It doesn't set us up for that at all. At this stage, chapter 18, we see an imperfect love. Now, let me just say this. Human love never begins perfect. It always has to grow into what it can become. I think that Michael had the kind of love, at least at the beginning, for David and maybe even for God that could have grown into something better. Not perfect, but more pure. But, and I'm going to show you this in just a moment, Michael does have an idol problem. We're going to see that in chapter 19. So just trust me in that. She, she was holding on to some false gods in her life. Some sin was in her life. Now think about this for a moment. Genuine love for God will eventually lead to the defeat of all idols. Now let me tell you what I mean when I say that. When you begin to comprehend the cross, when you begin to comprehend the cross of Jesus Christ, what needs to happen then is you need to realize that you have to learn to love Jesus more than your sins. Now, that's abstract, but let me put it to you this way. As a human being, you are going to be tempted in a lot of ways. Sexual temptation is one of the, the, the biggest temptations we have in our lives. Listen, you are going to have those temptations. And if you give in to them, if you clearly go against God's word, what's happened in that moment is the idol of sexual sin 
was, was more important to you than the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to defeat sin, the only way you can do it is to say in your heart at the moment of temptation, I love Jesus more. It's the only way. Because love at first sight, if we think about our relationship with Jesus, we think about how when we first came to know him, we knew that he was our savior and we were all in. But over time, when those temptations begin to roll in, your first love begins to wane and lessen. We must continually express love to Christ. And obviously it's in worship that we do that. The second thing is this, when we have love, it should be a love that gives. Now notice again, I have a question mark there uh, behind that, love that gives. Now, if you turn over one chapter in 1 Samuel, in the 19th chapter, beginning in verse nine, you have this interesting little side story about Michael and David. Now, let me say this, true love is a giving love. How do I know that true love is a giving love? Because that's the cross. When we try to think about what love is, if we want to define perfect love, look to the cross. And so if that is perfect love, then what, what we should realize is, is that in our relationships, if we have love that's like Christ, it should be a love that is looking to give, not just receive. When people today in our culture talk about making love, usually it is more about self-gratification than it is caring for the other. Real love gives without thinking about what it might get. Now, does Michael show this kind of love? Interestingly, yes. 1 Samuel 19 shows Saul acting like Saul. His behavior is nothing less than demonic. His mood swings are nothing less than homicidal. He has promised, Saul has promised his, his son that he loves very much Jonathan, that he's going to leave David alone. And then he starts throwing spears at him. Now, I think it's a breaking of your promise when you say to somebody, I'm not going to hurt them. And then you go chuck a spear at them. It's just my take on it. Don't mean to be a judger, but it seems like I need to judge and say, Saul's not doing what he should do. Moral of the story, if you're throwing spears at people, you're, you're not behaving well, okay? All right, there you go. Great moral principle to take with you home today. So don't go home and grab those spears. But this is what Saul's doing. He is misbehaving terribly. And so we have this, this picture here. He wants to strike David down like you would uh, a Philistine. He wants to, to uh, uh, cause harm. So this puts David and Michael in a very precarious scenario. David is home with Michael. Michael knows that Saul is out to get David. She has inside information. She knows that the gangsters are out in the alleyway waiting to, to, to perform a hit on David when he walks out of the house. If he goes out the front door, he's gonna die. So she feigns that he is sick. She, they both say that he is sick. And then she takes this household idol, which by the way, was a false idol. Okay, this is again, a sign that something's wrong in Michael's heart. They take this idol, they put a little bit of like animal hair on it, make it look like he's sleeping. And, and then he escapes out the window. When Saul comes, he realizes that he's been treated treacherously by his own daughter and gets onto her, gets angry with her. And she lies and says, well, David was going to hurt me and harm me. Now go back to the text. I don't have time to read it, but nowhere in the text does it say that David uh, threatened her in any way. Now, Michael had a love that was giving. She did help preserve David's life. 
But notice two very important problems. One, she's willing to lie. And two, she still has an idol in her bedroom. I don't think that that's an accident, that that's what's mentioned. I don't think it's an accident that that's what happened. She has a love for David that still gives, that is willing to put her own life in danger. That's all good, but there's something not quite right. I think about our lives today. I think about how today, when it comes to worship, when it comes to ministry, um, there's always that temptation that, that maybe I need to, to not do more. I need to hold back. I need to preserve. I need to be careful. But the truth is, most of the time, when we're not giving to ministry, um, we're, we're, we're often um, kind of trading it for something that's pretty selfish or, or something that's really not all that helpful. I think that, that sometimes we lie to ourselves. We, we tell ourselves that, the, that, that hobby is not a big deal or that the desires of our heart, those, those, those um, fascinations we have with whatever it may be, that they're okay as long as we don't indulge too much. I'm going to tell you, we have to be careful because Michael shows us how we can do some things that are right. But if the underlying principles, if there's some things here ethically and morally that aren't quite right, that means we're in trouble. It just boils down to this. You can't cling to your sins and cling to Christ. You will let go of one or the other. Oh, friends, we, we need to realize that, that it is worship that helps us stay true to God. It's only worship that continues to give us the, the passion and compassion to worship and to do ministry. I believe that we are in a very dangerous season here as so many people have, for good reasons, needed to stay home. We have so many people who are out of the habit of worship. They have, they have right now settled into a type of worship that is, is separated from the body of Christ. And, and hear me well, for some people, that's the right choice right now. But what bothers me is that many people are going to be tempted to think that that's enough. I don't think it is. I think that that, that shows that there, there may be something there that we need to have Christ deal with. So what does that look like? Well, the third point I want to make is this. Beware of love that fails to grow. That brings us over into 2 Samuel 6 verses 16 through 23, Michael was beautiful. She had experienced love at first sight. She had experienced a love that was giving, but something begins to go wrong. So let's fast forward several years. Let's give Michael a little bit of credit. It had been a hard, hard season for her. While David's stock rises, Saul's stock plummets. David becomes a mighty king over Israel. Saul and Jonathan and the house of Saul are destroyed. And many of her friends, cousins, brothers die in the battles with the Philistines. David is in ascension. David realizes that worship is important. And again, remember, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant in. He brings it in. He doesn't follow the prescribed methodologies that the Bible, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch provides. And because of that, a man who shouldn't touch the Ark, Uzzah, a good man otherwise, puts his hand up and does what seems to be right in the moment. And God strikes him dead. And David goes into a worship tailspin. He doesn't know what to do with this. And what he has to do is he has to spend some time talking to God and in his word to realize 
that he had been presumptuous. He thought if he would just worship God any old way, it would be okay. But listen to me, God wants us to worship his way, not our way. He has designs for this that are from him. And we cannot cheat. We cannot go our own way. David learns this lesson about worship and it transforms him. One scholar says that what we have here in 2 Samuel 6 is an example of holy delirium. We're talking about worship that is unbound. Worship that is free. Worship that doesn't care what other people around us think. That's the kind of worship that David is experiencing because he's bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant for us, I think the most significance we have is that um, Indiana Jones found it. I think that's kind of where our significance of that Old Testament piece of furniture kind of begins and ends. But long before Harrison Ford played that famous role, the Ark of the Covenant had very important uh, theological Import. Let me give you three reasons why the Ark of the Covenant is important. And it all points to Jesus. One, the Ark of the Covenant represents the relationship Yahweh has with his people. In other words, he's with them. The second thing that the Ark of the Covenant uh, points to is, is that God wants to reconcile his people. For it's over the Ark of the Covenant that sacrifices were shed. And then thirdly, it is a revelation to the world that God is powerful and able to do all things. In many ways, the ark represents the presence of Jesus in our day in the church, in the lives of the saints. This is an important thing. And so David's worship here is true and genuine. He is fired up. He is ready to go. He is serving the Lord. And the people seem to be uh, excited with him. Everything's going great. He's feeding them. They're worshiping good times. But Michael, Michael, she doesn't get it. She hasn't been worshiping God for some time now. The circumstances of her life evidently kept her from being the kind of worshiper that she needed to be. And so she had drifted away, maybe not to atheism, but she had probably drifted away to an I don't care attitude about worship. Our congregation on paper has 5,000 members. Before COVID came, if we had 1,500 on a Sunday, we would call that a success. I don't think that 3,500 of our brothers and sisters in Christ have walked away from their faith and become agnostic or atheist. But like Michael, they have learned somehow, they have accepted some way that worship is not a primary part of their equation. Let me say this to you. Don't think for a moment that that is a morally neutral choice. It is the pathway to brokenness and bitterness. When you are flippant about your worship, when worship becomes an option on the smorgasbord, on the buffet of your life, you are in deep trouble. And today in the church, we, pastors like me, we just don't even talk about the problem of church members who don't want to ever go to church. 
But here's the thing, and here's what God's word is saying. And I hope this will convict not only those of you in the room, but those of you at home and those of you who, who right now, it's not about COVID. That's not the reason you don't worship. You have other reasons. And it's not about fear and it's not about COVID. It's about a heart that over time has grown cold. This is dangerous. This is not something that you should just dismiss. I am saying this hopefully in prophetic fashion for God to grab your heart and for you to realize that your name on a baptismal certificate, your name on a membership roll will not be enough in heaven. The Lamb's book of life is bigger than that. And when our lives go years, decades without worship, something is the matter. Have you ever been really excited about something? Pumped up. I mean, good news. And you walk in to a group of friends or you walk into home and you are just on fire and excited. And everybody's like, yeah, that didn't mean anything to me. I mean, it's hard to go from here to here. It's like a, it's like a car wreck. What hurts you is, is the sudden stop. The jolt. Look at the text. Tell me if you don't see the jolt between verse 19 and 20. There is a jolt in the text. There is a jolt in David's heart. He comes from an environment where people are praising the Lord, celebrating the Lord together, and he comes home to the one place where the celebration ought to be the best, and that's where it is completely lacking. Michael was a as we said, a beautiful woman. I can imagine her there, hair perfect, makeup perfect, sitting on the chaise lounge. David walks in, she gets up gracefully, points a finger at his face and says, boy, you just made a fool of yourself. Those young women got a kick out of their king acting like a fool. heartbreaking. David doesn't deserve this. Michael's heart is so wicked because she has not worshiped. It's only worship that helps us uncover the enemies that lie within the sins that are killing us. Only the light of worship will reveal our sin. And once it is revealed, it must be destroyed Michael had not been in the light of the gospel, so to speak. She had not heard the word of God in such a long time that, that she couldn't even recognize worship. Think back to Uzzah losing his life as he reaches out to touch the ark. Yes, he lost his life, but Michael lost her soul because of her contempt for David and for worship. Uzzah got the better end of the deal. Death was better than Michael's uh, decision, where, what her destiny ended up being. It was far worse because her soul seems dead. David was more a worshiper of Yahweh than anyone around him. The Spirit of God moved in him. That should have been celebrated, but his own wife scorned him. If we have lost something, today we better find it. If we have lost love, 
or if we have a love that isn't growing, if we have a worship life that is less than exciting, something is missing. Let me ask you this question. We don't have to get worked up every Sunday. But what does it mean when we haven't been worked up for Jesus in a month of Sundays? If you can't remember the last time your heart was burning because you felt the presence of the Lord, whether in worship or listening to a song on the radio or a podcast, a sermon, something. If it's been so long that you you have to go back weeks or months to say, I can't hardly remember the last time that my heart leapt for joy as I heard the gospel proclaimed. Let me tell you why 3,500 people at Ridgecrest don't come to worship because they've been separated from the joy of worship even when they're here for so long that they no longer realize what they're missing. And and you don't have to raise your hand and you don't have to say amen when I'm preaching and you don't have to run around like the Pentecostals do up and down the aisles. You don't have to do that. But if you never have any joy, something's the matter. (laughs) Next week, we're going to celebrate Renew and Refresh. It doesn't mean anything if we rededicate this room without rededicating our hearts. Doesn't mean a thing. All the money spent, all the time, all the gray hair that I've added, and I didn't need to add anymore, thank you very much. It's worthless if we don't rededicate ourselves to the cause. I hope I'm speaking to you because many of us are like Michael. We're up in our high tower, viewing worship with a critical eye, viewing ministry with a critical eye. Could it be, could it be true that we spend more time critiquing the worship of others than we spend time enraptured by worship? The age of COVID has opened up a door for non-Christians and Christians alike to be hypercritical of the church. And and church leaders often make mistakes. We go the wrong direction. But hear me, what scares me more than anything is when you have individuals who they almost always seem to be the first to criticize. They always see what's the matter. They always have a word of advice. They always have a negative word. Listen, I know how terrible I can be sometimes. And I know that I need brothers and sisters helping me and correcting me. But if my heart is always critical and always lacking joy, something is the matter. And what we need to realize is, is the pressure of the age of COVID is revealing stress fractures, not just in our relationships, but in our worship. It's beginning to show that our idea of church is paramount to what God's idea of church is. We don't like a certain kind of music. We don't like a certain kind of sermon. We don't like a certain kind of ministry paradigm. And we find time to criticize. And we never ask the question, about where our hearts are in worship. Oh Lord, deliver us from a worship life that is only critical. An attitude of sarcasm and scorn rather than an attitude that brings healing. Those who don't grow in love grow jaded. I think I'm on point here today, not because I wanna brag on myself, I think I'm on point here today because I've been the critical spirit many times in my life. I've been the jaded one. 
I've been the one that when I was younger and I would look at other ministries, I thought at age 25 or even 30 or 35 that I could look at other ministries, see what was going wrong and say, I can do it better. And every second I spend criticizing others was a second I was not growing in my love for Jesus and in my worship. I believe that Ridgecrest is going to have to take a, a turn for the better. Not that we are doing things bad. I, I hope you hear me. I, I've been really impressed with our congregation as a whole in terms of holding up strong and being supportive. But listen to me, things are not going to get better right away. The COVID age still has some life in it, sadly, as much as I want to put it in the past. And we have this opportunity right now to be a church that draws together, fills with love, and becomes a force for the kingdom. But we will not become that church that Jesus wants us to be if we are just always in that gear of negativity. I'm going to tell you, when I am critical of others, when I am critiquing, when I am evaluating, when I am watching with this trained mind of mine and trying to pick things apart, every single time I do that, I do not walk away from it. And then at the end of the day, I go, oh boy, I feel good about the world. That critical spirit leads to a bad taste in my soul. Uzzah lost his life. Michael lost her soul. Uzzah was at least trying to worship. Michael had walked away from worship. David was worshiping before the Lord, we are told. Worship like this points to intimacy with God. But look at the end of Michael's story. She stopped growing in love. And verse 23 makes it clear that that was the beginning of a death sentence. We are told that she was barren. But this isn't about biology and fertility. This is about bitterness of her soul. She lost intimacy with her husband. And that is a picture of how we lose intimacy with God. Healthy marriages are a picture, a very imperfect picture, but a picture of God, Christ, and the church. And so with David, what we see here is, is that he and Michael, they grow apart. And that is a picture of a lack of intimacy. David's growing in his worship and Michael is waning in her worship. That's what causes the divide. <laughs> Lawyers talk about irre irreconcilable differences. But here it's a difference of faith and worship. You see, when your heart gets further and further away from God, you're like the world. The world can't understand worship. Out in California, John MacArthur at his church may go to jail for having worship. And lost people in California think Christians are the dumbest people in the world because they're hungry to be together in worship. The world is never going to understand this thing called worship. But here's what scares me. There's a lot of people on the role of churches that don't seem to understand worship either. And the reason I know that's true is because many of them avoid it like the plague. <laughs> I would be more worried about the virus of sin than Corona. I would be more concerned that if you don't have a good excuse if, if there's not a health reason, if there's not a legitimate reason, and realize, and I'm not saying this to be cruel and mean to people at home or anything else, but do you realize 
the longer God keeps you from fellowship with the people of God, the harder it's going to be to return to that fellowship. I don't like these masks, but I don't tell you what, what I, why, why I do like the masks. It takes another reason away. It, it is a way to show respect. It is a way to say, come and worship. Now, those at home can't see this, but there's 1,700 chairs in this room, 1,600 anyway. We'll have 100 behind me and that'll make it 17. But there's room <laughs> for you. There is room. If you want to set up in the balcony as far away as possible from people, you can do that. But don't take this as a word of criticism because I do realize that some people for health reasons are where they are. But I want you to hear this. I worry. I worry because I see people getting back to normal in every other way but this. That is the enemy at work. That's just all it is. And how does the enemy work? Now hear this so, so you don't, you know, write hate mail to me. He causes us to be afraid. And, and it's not a fear that's rational. It's a fear that can be irrational. We've all fall, fallen prey to this. We have had moments of weakness. We are, the people in this room are not better than the people watching at home. Do you, do you agree with me, audience? Are you better than people that are at home? No, but here, here's the thing. We're, we're not making a statement like that, but here's what we're saying. We're saying, if we're not careful, our worship will wane. And, and the world can't understand this. Now, let me say this. A critical spirit towards worship is truly symptomatic of, of love that's not growing. Michael's critique of David's worship opens a door here for us to see that when we are critical. Now, I'm gonna say this. We, we have some good news coming soon. I'm telling you, some, some God's working and, and uh, we're gonna have a, a brand new thing going on in this service. I don't know if that's saying too much, but anyway, uh, Rich is excited about it. We're excited about it. We've got, God's been moving, but hear this. One of the things that bothers me about Ridgecrest is, is that we have two groups of people with two different worship styles, at least two, and if we spend all of our time firing shots at the other group, that's just time we're not growing in love and worship. I do not want Ridgecrest to be known as a battleground for the worship wars. I don't know exactly what perfect worship looks like and neither do you. And you're not gonna know until you're singing before the throne of God in heaven. And in the meantime, instead of trying to figure out what contemporary is or what traditional is, ask this question. Am I consistently encountering a holy God when I worship? And if the answer is no, you can point a finger at the music, you can point a finger at the preacher, you can point a finger at anything you want to, but down deep inside, this is a heart issue that God needs to deal with in your heart. How can I say such a thing? Because every Sunday I have to fight that too. It's one thing to come and sit in these comfortable chairs now. <laughs> it's another thing for me to have my heart right to, to, to worship with you and preach. And there's a lot of times over the years I've failed. I say these things to you, not because I've had a successful worship life, but because more often than not, I've walked away from church as empty as when I came in. And I wanted to blame somebody else, but the older I get, the more I realize the blame is right here. 
You want to grow in love and worship? This is where it starts. And we critique less and we worship more. We don't point fingers. We open our arms and love people, even those who think differently than us. I've gone about 10 minutes longer in this service, so I'm sorry. Um, You know, you're getting more bang for the buck, I guess. I made my time on the first one, so I kind of figured I didn't care here. Um, I want to just conclude with this thought. Love grows in difficult places. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Because your heart is a difficult place. Michael's heart was not an easy place for God to, 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 to grow in worship. It really wasn't. Now, I told you she had all the advantages. She was beautiful. She was raised in a, in a very wealthy home. She had a very godly husband. She seemed to have all the outside things. But I'm going to tell you, if you had every privilege the world has to offer, your heart is still a hard place for love to grow. If you really want to grow in love, there needs to be an intentionality inside of you. A desire to know God more. Because the human heart is often resistant to God's love. And what the human heart needs most is what it resists most. Those of you with little kids know that the little ones need their vegetables. And most of the time, they hate them. It's just built into this fallen creation here. What I need most is what I resist most. So when I go back to the lack of a desire to worship, do you realize that's the natural progression when we've not kept in close fellowship with God? It's only natural that we begin to resist the impulse to worship. And the more we resist it, the more we succumb to spiritual laziness. If you have your copy of scripture, I want you to open one more passage. Psalm 59. Psalm 59 is the psalm that David wrote after he went out the window. When Michael and David uh, hatched the plan to get him safe and sound, uh, when Saul's henchmen were waiting around, and I'm gonna tell you, the first 15 verses of that chapter are dark and foreboding. You can tell this is a man who's been through a season of suffering. You can tell this is a man who's struggling in his relationship with God. But I want you to see where he lands. I want you to listen to where God takes his heart. And ultimately, the question is this. Can you say these words? But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud, God, of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. If you have that open in your lap, I want your eyes to focus on that for just a moment. And Kelsey's going to play for just a few moments here. We haven't been able to have an invitation like I would like to for many months now. (laughs) Rich talked about hauling these prayer benches down. If you were in the meeting where we voted on this remodel back in September of last year, one of the more poignant questions was, hey, we don't see in the renderings these prayer benches. 
Some of our, our, our support staff have, have refinished these to make them here, put them here. More than one person came to me and said after that, and I thought it, more than one person said to me, I wonder how many who complained about there being no kneeling benches haven't been up to kneel in a long time. When I read those last two verses, especially verse 17, God, you're my fortress. You show me steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word that has grabbed my heart and imagination now for many years. Listen, the Lord knows about your lack of desire for worship. He knows about the lack of intensity of your ministry. He knows about your critical spirit. He knows that your heart is a hard place for love to grow. And yet his steadfast love is here today pursuing you. As we've gone through COVID-19 together, we like David can say, it's been a rough time. But I just wanna ask you once again, as you're looking at that passage of scripture, can you say those two words with confidence? Those last two verses, can you say it with confidence? Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit ridgecrestbaptist.org.